Say to Me. I'm your host, Jordana Levine, and I am so bloody excited to bring you this week's episode. It's with one of my favorite Aussie authors, Sally Hepworth. Now, I'm not going to lie, this was a big get for me, and I was a little bit nervous before sitting down to this interview with Sally. Sally is a New York Times bestselling author. She's written six successful novels, all of which are filled with her signature dark humor and brimming with astute observations capturing the best and worst of human nature. Her characters are flawed and their relationships complex. And her latest book, The Younger Wife, delivers on all fronts. Sally joined me to chat about everything, including the book she wrote that never made it onto shelves, the one that was only ever published in German. She divulged about the book research that took her to an elite swingers party. It is a great story. And the moment she found out she was on the New York Times bestsellers list. We discussed what it was like having breakfast with Amy Poehler in LA. And of course, I asked Sally a bunch of questions about her favorite reads. On that note, did you know that in every episode of Talk Wordy to Me, there is a list of all of the books that are recommended throughout the episode in the show notes. So if you've been trying to write them down or commit them to memory, you don't have to, my friend. Just head to the show notes of each episode and there'll be a long list of book recommendations. Before we dive into this episode, I just want to read you the back cover blurb of Sally's new book, The Younger Wife. I absolutely loved it. The first book I ever read of Sally's was The Mother-in-Law, which was fantastic. And we talk about that particular book throughout this episode. And then I went back like you do when you find a favorite author and read the back catalog. I loved The Younger Wife. It is the latest one. Sometimes I find when you have a favorite author, you hold them up to standards and they never quite meet them as they move forward with new books. I can say that about a few authors, but Sally has not disappointed with this book. This is the back cover blurb. The moment she laid eyes on Heather Wisher, Tully knew this woman was going to destroy their lives. Tully and Rachel are murderous when they discover their father has a new girlfriend. The fact that Heather is half his age isn't even the most shocking part. Stephen is still married to their mother, who is in a care facility with with end-stage Alzheimer's disease. Heather knows she's an uphill. Heather knows she has an uphill battle to win Tully and Rachel over, while carrying the burden of the secrets of her past. But as it turns out, they're all hiding something. The announcement of Stephen and Heather's engagement threatens to set off a family implosion with old wounds and dark secrets finally being forced to the surface. A garage full of stolen goods, an old hot water bottle stuffed with cash, a blood-soaked wedding, and that's only the beginning. It is a classic tale from Sally Hepworth. All of her signature pieces are in there. The complex relationships, the family dynamics, the twists, the turns... I found this book to be a great page turner. I read it in a few days. It kept me guessing the whole way through. And I felt super satisfied by the time I arrived at the acknowledgement section, which for me is the sign of a good read. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Sally Hepworth. You know, I always get sent a press release when um, I'm talking to an author and it always says something like, uh, you know, Sally Hepworth bursts onto the publishing scene with their debut novel. And it says that for most authors, but for the author, it rarely feels like this feeling of bursting. 
Did it feel like that for you when uh, I think your first book was The Secret of Midwives, right? Yeah, kind of. I, I actually had written a book before that, which ended up being published in German and only in German. So that definitely didn't feel like a bursting onto the scene. That was kind of just like creeping onto the scene. When you say it was it was released in German, was it also released in English though? No. Oh my goodness. It's the most unusual start to publishing of any of the stories that I have heard. It uh, it was um, the book was set in the south of France and in London and my agent who's in America tried to sell it in America. And look, it was my very first book, so it wasn't a very good book, let's face it. And I, uh, he thought, well, maybe it'll do okay in Europe because it's got this, you know, south of France location and it's got this English location. We thought maybe a, a French publisher or a or an English publisher might buy it and it, a couple of German publishers bid on it. Not very much, to be clear. It was a very small <laughs> bid. But um, and, and I remember still my, my agent saying, hey, we've got a deal with this German publisher and it's going to be published in German. And I said, oh. Same question as you. Will it be published in English too? And he yeah. said no. And, you know, I thought now that I have gone forth and written all these other books, I'm so grateful that it was only published in German because it really wasn't a very good book and I don't want anyone to read it. Well, so. I mean, look, I think any book that's been published has got to be better than all those books that never get, that never see the light of day. But it's a funny, it's funny example that you bring that up because my first book, uh, the only foreign rights translation that it had was German. I mean, it was it was quite successful in English, but it was in German. And it was so funny reading it because I'm sort of flicking through it. Well, obviously not reading it because it was in German and you can't read it when it's yeah. in German. But flicking through it and sort of knowing what it says because you've written the book, but also having absolutely no idea. And the only thing you can really recognise is your own name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was um, the same experience and just hoping desperately that perhaps the translator had made it better. <laughs> well, I always think, you know, your books have this sort of real kind of dark humour to them. And I think sometimes a lot of that humour is probably, uh, you know, very relevant to an Australian audience because we have that sort of like gritty darkness to us. But yeah. I always think like when they translate it into another language, is the humour coming through? Because I just can't imagine that it would all the time. I mean, the only thing I can be grateful for is that I'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I can always just tell myself that the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, so then, so, so then after that real first book, mm. it was The Secret of Midwives in 2015 when you burst onto the scene. Yeah. Did, did that did that feel like a burst or was that like a real sort of like painstaking process to get to the point where you were being recognised for the work you were doing? Well, I don't know. I mean, that was the first book, obviously. So in a way, it's a bit of a burst in that it was the first launch of a book. It was the first time I'd seen it in a bookstore. It's the first yeah. time I'd, you know, been able to flick through it and understand the words in it, unlike the, the German version. Uh, so it was pretty exciting. And it was also the you know, the contract that I got for that book allowed me to quit my job and, and to write full time. So in that sense, it was a um, a life change and it was the start of something new and exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and that book did well and, and you know, the, the subsequent books have done well, but it's never been for me, and even my publisher described this the other day, it's been like a step 
a stepping, you know, some stairs. And, and each time each book has done a bit better than the last in general. And and probably if there was a time that I would describe as the burst onto the scene, it would be the mother-in-law, which had the biggest jump from from the book before. And and um and then since then, you know, the good sister and, and the younger wife have continued to to take a bigger jump. So um definitely not an overnight success. Lots of nights, but um there have been some years that have been more exciting than others for sure. I do want to talk about the mother-in-law. We will get to it. Um, and obviously the younger wife, that's your latest book. But you did mention before the opportunity to quit your full-time job when that contract came through for The Secrets of Midwives. What were you doing prior to being a best-selling author? Well, I was. I worked in HR and I uh, was doing that full-time up until I had my first child my son uh and it was during that maternity leave that I wrote Love Like the French which is the the book that was published in German and then I went back to work part-time as a recruiter and I was right I continued to write and work part-time and I had another baby and um so it was that job I'd actually just had my second child and so I was on maternity leave again she was about six weeks old I think when I got yeah. the contract for the secrets, uh, the secrets of midwives, and it was a three book deal. So it was for that, and, and two more books, and um, yeah, it was it was lucrative enough that I was able to say, right, I'm done with recruiting, and now you know I'm gonna I'm gonna give writing a shot. And luckily, I've been able to continue. Yeah, yes, and quite successfully. <laughs> had had writing a novel been something that you'd wanted to do for a really long time, or like how did how did that sort of evolve? Yes, well, I, I quite famously declared to my family when I was seven that I wanted to become an author. And I then, you know, being quite uh, diligent at what I say that I'm going to do, I went, took to my desk and, and wrote a, a book of short stories, which I asked my aunt, who was a publisher, but not of novels or, or short stories, of school textbooks, academic books. But I knew that she published, so I said, I'd like you to publish my book. And she, you know, put it between two into a manila folder with those gold kind of press, you know, studs and sort of bound it yeah. uh, very, very rudimentarily. And then, you know, wrote published uh, 1988, it was. And, uh, and so that was, I don't know, my mum always tells that story now as if it was written in the stars. But uh, there was a period in between of about 20 years that I, sort of forgot that that's what I wanted to do. My dog's here and she snorts every now and then. Just so I love that. Listeners know it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's a really good excuse. Um, I, I then for a period of time, I didn't know that writing a novel was something that you could do. It wasn't like becoming a lawyer or a, you mm. know, something really, really vocational that you could go, right, this is my career path and, uh, you know, or a nurse or a, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so it was something, yes, I'd always wanted to do, but I didn't really figure out how to do it or sit down and have a go at it until, yeah, I was 28 and, and on maternity leave and that's when it started to happen. I love that because I think a lot of people think that when they're at that stage where they're about to have kids, that perhaps that's the wrong time to be starting a novel. Like that, that's when you have zero time to be writing a book but that's when your career took off really wasn't it yeah and look for some people it would be the wrong time like I, I've had people say to me like you know these harried you know exhausted mothers with new babies saying how did you do it and I always think oh you poor sweet thing just don't do it now like, I was blessed with a child that and I say he's 12 now and I say to him still he was a robot baby 
and he's still a robot child. He was slept and he ate and he just did everything that he, yeah, you know, wow. was supposed to do. And he's just a darling child. It, my two daughters that followed, I couldn't, I couldn't write a shopping list, let alone write a book when I was looking after them full time. So, you know, if you're listening and wanting to do it and you can't, it's not you, it's your baby. And yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never met a baby that was as amenable to it as, as my son was. But um, what it was, I guess, is, is not that like all of a sudden you have so much time. It was more that you have this period of a pause, I guess, um, mm-hmm. where you, you, you know, you throw your head into your career and, you know, you need the money and you, you know, at the time we were living overseas and I was, you know, in a new-ish relationship with my husband and you're so full of, of where you're going and you don't take that pause and think, what do I actually want? And I think for a lot of women who take maternity leave, or men, um, but it seems to be largely women, they get that, that they come away from that experience thinking, do I want to go back to what I was doing before? Or do I, is there something that I love that I connect to that I could do? And and so even if you can't write the book, if you have a period of pause in your life to reflect, um, that's a really good thing. And that's what maternity leave was for me. When you were working with, in HR before you before you took your maternity leave, were you at a point where you were like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to come back to this. No, I always liked it. I loved all the jobs that I had. Um, I always joke that I was the worst HR person because I'm a dreadful gossip. I got into it because I loved the gossip. I loved to yeah. know how much everyone was paid and, you know, who was in trouble and, you know, <laughs> so I liked it. I liked that job and, and I, uh, and I enjoyed the kind of working in an office and I had lots of great friends. So no, I never hated what I did. And I often think I, I hear those stories, especially among writers, burnt out lawyers. There's so many of yeah. them that just want a life change or, um, you know, it, it, but, and I wonder if the, the prompt of doing something that you hate is almost the wrong one because it makes you think you can, you can romanticize about what being a writer is and most yeah. people get it wrong. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, and I think it also puts this sort of almost um, perhaps the wrong word to be using, but this desperate energy towards the writing project, especially from a financial perspective, because you're so desperate to get out of that full-time role. And it's, exactly. it's not the pressure you want to be putting on it. And I've seen that. That's exactly the word I would use, desperation. Not that I wasn't desperate because I, you do, when you're hungry for something, you're desperate. Um, but I, I I agree. I think that sometimes the desperation in any sense of the word, if you're trying desperately to make money or replace an income that you had, or even for some authors, a desperation comes around sales figures. You know, they know that they need to rate here or sell this many copies. And and it it isn't the right kind of state of mind to go into it. Like I think the mm-hmm. best way to start, whether it's writing or a business or something else is, with that that curiosity and love of the craft of it and you know take the pressure off yourself of having to make them like keep your other job if you can until you know that this is something that you can make money of so you can enjoy the love of it learn the craft take your time and yeah. and because yeah desperation is never never going to be your friend <laughs> I don't it? think it translates as a friend in any context really no. um, tell me a little bit about your writing process in terms of this is me getting super pervy with you because I want to know. In terms of plot lines, your books have these incredible plot lines. They're they're always like this very sort of observational kind of narrative about 
you know, relationships and families and all this sort of stuff going on. Where where do you start with your books? And and it, maybe it's different for each book, but do you start with a good storyline? Do you start with a character? How does it yeah. work for you? Different different things. Usually I'll start with a a plot or a question. You know, yeah. I'll think something like midwives for the first book you know I'd like to write I like reading about midwives maybe I should write something about midwives and from there it might think well who's going to be in it well what if I had a mother and a daughter <gasps> what if I had a grandmother oh that would be good that would be a book I would like to read and mm. then but what's going to happen and so usually that really early piece is is that kind of you know just in my head you know who would be in it what would happen you know what's it about would I be interested in researching like I would need to about this, you know, you're not going to see me write books about finance or hedge funds because that's not interesting <laughs> to so me. so enthralling. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's where it starts. And then I'll, I'll start to put together a bit of a plot. Like if there's a few turning points that happen in a novel, you know, what kicks it off, what kind of goes wrong, what's the lowest moment, what's the crisis. And I'll, I'll kind of think what could happen. I'm I'm not married to that because it's what looks like could happen on a page or on a one sheeter. Then when you write the whole novel, you get to that point and think, oh, that worked on the page. But now that I know the characters, yeah. now I've seen everything else, that's not going to work. Um, and usually by then you've got a, another better idea, or at least you can go on lots of long meandering walks and and figure out a better idea. Um, but yeah, so next comes that kind of what could happen, where's it going to go? because my publisher wants to see that they want to make sure that you know I, I thought it through and um and then from there it, it really is about the characters for example it's about who would be most challenged by this plot you know mm. what if um if it's a book about someone who needs to give a speech that's going to you know change a small town's view of something you know who would be most challenged by that what if it was someone who um, was afraid of public speaking or had a stutter or, you know, like who who can I put in that we're really going to root for and that's really going to be challenged? Because if that person was already an amazing public speaker, it's like not that interesting. Like, wait, yeah. well, we know that he's going to, you know, you need to stack, stack the odds against someone and hopefully they'll come out changed on the other side so you can see where do they start and where do they finish. So that's why for me character comes second you know some people mm-hmm. they say plot comes first character comes second uh sorry they say character comes first plot comes second for me it's typically the other way around but um but the more you know I, I've written eight books now and and the more I write them the more and, and I I used to talk in absolutes this is how I do it this is how it works yeah and the more I do it the more I think that's usually how I do it but yeah I didn't do it for that I did it differently with that book or you know that yeah. doesn't always work because of this so um yeah I, I think you've sort of sometimes each book is its own beast I really like that idea of sort of starting with a question a question yeah. a question that perhaps you've got about the world or a circumstance or a situation and then sort of like developing it from there because I think you know day-to-day life we're full of these sorts of questions right and we don't always yeah. get the opportunity to see how they play out you said before um, your first book deal was actually a three-book deal, which yeah. I, I don't know if people outside of the publishing industry are aware of of how that works with fiction, but that's often the case, right? Does that put 
a lot of pressure on you from the onset to come up with three story ideas in a in a certain amount of time? No, because I don't have to come up with them straight away. So okay. I, I've, I've just recently, uh, in the last week, signed a new three-book deal for the next three. And so I'm working on the first book idea together with my publisher. Uh, but I don't have to pitch three like okay. at this point. And, and it, look, it's probably different for different people. I've worked with this same publisher for, you know, this will be the the what, like the ninth, 10th and 11th book that, that they have bought. Same publisher, same person. And so she now just buys my three books not knowing what they are. And we just work on the next one. And then when I finish that book, then I'll work on another idea. And sometimes she doesn't like my ideas. You know, sometimes she'll say, no. Or sometimes she'll say, "Um, yeah, but I've seen a book done like that. And I think that's a bit, what if, what about this? And then I'll think, no, not that, but what about this? And we kind of end up with something. I I think that it's a really common thing, both people, the most common questions I get, people asking, are you worried you're going to run out of ideas? Do you hate it when editors tell you what to do? And, um, you know, are you worried that they're going to change your work, either whether it's when it's translated to TV or, or whatnot, or even just between you and your publishers? And no, they're not things that I worry about because it's such a collaborative um uh, world that I work with with people that I trust and people who make me look good like if they want to make a change usually I'm like yes why did yeah. I not think of that great <laughs> have you ever had a, a book idea that was really good that everyone was on board with and then as you started developing it it just was not happening Yes, the, the Swingers book, which I, I've t- I've talked about quite um, often on the on podcasts, and it's a it's a, it's a crowd favorite. And and you know it's funny because I went out with a group of authors last night who were friends of mine, and one of the authors who is a friend said to me, "I'm so glad that you tell that story because she had a rejection recently, and she said I I thought to myself, well at least it isn't as bad as what happened to Sally." <laughs> So I'm the new rock bottom. That's awesome. Like, but, <laughs> but it actually is. Like, I, I, that's why I tell it because I think that people yeah. can kind of only show their good sides and only show the success and not not talk about the failure. So, um, the the well, after the mother-in-law, which was my, you know, arguably that the book that kind of broke me out and you know was very successful and was associated with a lot of, you know, wonderful things. Uh, I then was tasked with writing another book and I came up with a plot that was uh, set at a swingers party and uh, I I pitched it to my editor and there was a bit of back and forth as usual and eventually she said yes go and write it that sounds good. I just want to stop you right there because this has always puzzled me when I've heard you talk about this story before what what was your like why was that your initial idea what sparked a swingers party for you what was it? Well, I wanted to write, as you know, like I write books about family relationships. That's always been my area of interest. And like I'm often when I start a book, I think, what haven't I looked at in families? Because there's just so much material there. And so I thought, what about marriage? You know, I'd love to write a book about marriage. And what about sex in marriage? Because I think that um, it's something that is such a big part of marriage. You know, it can sink it, it can make it, it can you know, as people say, it's the one thing that stops you from being friends and makes you partners. Um, and I thought that's just such an interesting thing to explore. And um, and so that becomes the story question, how important is sex in marriage? Can, can there be a marriage without sex? You know, 
what about monogamy? And so it was those ideas that I thought, what about a swingers party? <laughs> and <Naturally. laughs> I mean, it's a natural setting. And then yeah. who would go there and why? And, and, uh, but when I first came up with it, I don't know much about swinging. And I went to that kind of cliche 70s keys in the bowl kind of, that's what I was picturing before I then dived into research. And I discovered that in fact, swinging is a different ball game. Well, I think perhaps that still happens, but um, what you see more more these days is parties and it's less about partner swapping and more about orgies. Mm. And so I thought, well, this is like a really fun, and it was never going to be erotic fiction. It was about marriage. It was an exploration of marriage, but in this pretty exciting um back you know set up and you know let's put three couples in this situation and see what happens in theory I had it in my head right I thought this I get what I'm doing I think it I think it'll work but it didn't and look I it, the research took me to some really interesting place I went to a swingers party with my husband um which was kind of something we'll never unsee and and something <laughs> We're favourites at dinner parties now. Everyone invites us just so we can tell them the swinging stories and there are some good ones. Not that we didn't do it. We didn't swing, but we sure you didn't. <laughs> can, but let, let's just talk about that party because, I mean, it's something that I've always wondered about. And I have to say, Sally, this is not the first time this week I've had a conversation about swinging parties with an oh, author. Oh. So it's a thing, right? Um, yeah, and it is something wow. I think that, people that haven't done it are so interested in because it's likely not going to be something that they're ever going to experience, you know? And, and I am, I'm so disappointed that this book hasn't been written because I really want to know what happens behind those closed doors. So what can you tell us about what you saw? I know. So the, the one that we went to, so we, I did a lot of research about, because there's, I mean, as you can imagine, there's the whole gamut of, you know, from the very kind of nasty ones that I wouldn't want to go to right up to the kind of eyes wide shut, really. Um, and, and the one we went to was not quite eyes wide shut, but it was very expensive. It was oh. very vetted in terms of you needed, they needed to see photos of you to make sure that you were, you know, attractive enough, I guess. You had to be under 40, which we, you know, we're going back a couple of years and so we just scraped in. Um, <laughs> you had to. You had and what, to, like show your driver's license? Or like some sort of idea? I think there was a form uh, that we had to, and we had to upload things. So, yeah, it may have been a driver's licence. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Probably that. Yeah. Um, wow. Sexual, sexual uh, transmitted. We had to have STD tests. Oh, and, okay. Which we well, that makes me feel safer all of a sudden. I know. I know. Yeah. There were lots of parts of it that were really good, but that's another story. But so, so I then got in touch with this. The, the person who ran the parties and I said I'm a writer I'm writing a book about it I don't want to be duplicitous about that I also don't want to actually swing Have I, want to, yeah. I want to come <laughs> if this is appropriate and if you're okay with it and I will pay my money and I want to observe and she said that's fine but you can't tell anyone that what you're doing which I completely understand because that then you know they'll feel like they're being watched and that's not fair um, and she said, go to this party because there's a lot of people there and um, a lot of first-timers, a lot of people who just watch and, you know, don't take part so you won't stick out like a sore thumb. So we went to this party. It was in Sydney. We live in Melbourne, so we flew there. We didn't get the details until the 24 hours before via email of where we had to go, um, and then we arrived. It was this gorgeous penthouse in Sydney, this enormous 
boudoir, you know, mm. and it, it, you know, really well done. If you were into it, if this was your thing, then this was the party to go to. Can I ask what, I mean, and you don't have to disclose, but like what kind of money are we talking about? It was, I'm pretty sure it was $1,000 a ticket to attend. Wow. So not a couple or no, a, cu- a thousand no, a couple? No, it was 1000 each. But there wow. were different things. That was for Christian and I, but there were different rules. Like if you were a woman going on your own, it was cheaper <laughs> because I guess like, and, it, but, and you couldn't go, if you were a single man, you couldn't go. Okay. It, you, you needed to be with a partner. So single women, yeah. two women or, um, or couples. Uh, so and there was different pricing because of like them not wanting to stack it with you know too many people but yeah for Christian and I I'm pretty sure it was a thousand dollars a ticket and it was amazing I mean it was the most to rent the penthouse alone it was um pretty it would have been expensive yeah and there were things there was a lot of security in place and um when we arrived there was a clipboard and they had to tick off the um rules with us and they said you you as a woman you can approach a man but a man can't approach a woman if a woman approaches you um what well, me or my husband they will touch you on their shoulder and then they'll walk towards a bedroom and you can follow them that means you know we'd like to you know get it on with you and yeah. um if you follow that's great if you don't follow that's a rejection and then she can't proposition you again and so when I said before they're the thing there were some things that were good about it I loved that about it because imagine like as I'm a a heterosexual cis woman when I was in my 20s imagine going to a bar and a man touch instead of having to have men chatting you up they touch you on the shoulder to see if you're interested and then you didn't respond and then that was it they couldn't contact you know that was yeah it'd be amazing to have that power as a woman um and also every new act sexual act whether it's kissing whether it's fondling whether it's sex oral sex has to be consented as you go so it's not like you know if you're go back to someone's house with a man and you think I'm okay with kissing and this but then it starts to go too far Mm. that isn't possible in this environment because everyone is on board and really passionate about these rules if anyone breaks the rules which happen I saw it happen twice um, the woman will just say, you didn't consent, and immediately a bodyguard comes in and takes <gasps> the man away. And it was that part of it was cool. Um, yeah, and, that is really cool. Yeah. When you when you looked around the room at the people in the room, was it what you expected to see? It was more than I expected to see. Like I think um, I was a little bit – I'd done a lot of research, so I thought that I knew. But – it, it, it was orgy. I mean, there were orgies everywhere. They were amazing. I mean, if the first orgy started really quickly, I remember Christian and I were standing there with our drinks, like we were at a kindergarten fundraiser and then, and making small talk. And then someone said, there's something started. And so Christian said, well, should we go and look? And I thought, well, we kind of have to, like, that's what that's we're doing. We're here. here right? Yeah. And so we went in and I was just thinking, oh my God, like it was just, I was getting hot flushes and oh, it was so, because I'm a massive introvert normally. So just, I was very out of my comfort zone and we went in and there was this, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It was like a Cirque du Soleil kind of mm. dance of sex. There was probably 15, 12, 15 people on the bed, a lot of um, women, a lot of lesbians and bisexual women, a lot of, um, you know, men and just this kind of sensual dance. It was 
gorgeous. It scared the shit out of me because I was, you know, that not my thing, but I could totally see how it would be someone's thing. Yeah. And so from then on, the rest of the evening was uh, you, you slowly become desensitized because that to me was a shock and had my heart pounding. But by the end of the night, I, I remember sitting on a couch and I was pretty much the only one left and Christian who were fully dressed. Everyone else was either nude or in some sort of lingerie or kind of semi-dressed. And I was talking to someone and next to me, I looked to my side and there's a couple having a threesome on the couch. And like, while it was happening, like the leg of the man was like kind of thrown over my knee and I kind of just looked at it and then just went back to my conversation. <laughs> you, you, Yes, it's shocking and it is to say it back, but you quite quickly go, oh, there's a threesome, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I imagine, I mean, how long were you guys there for? How long were you in the room? Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Well, it started, I think it started at 10, which was incredibly late I mean usually yeah. I'm well asleep by then. bedtime yeah and uh, I think we left about one and there were people still there um but I we had got what we needed in terms of you know I, yeah. I wanted to go and like just clock make sure I did a good job of it like you don't delve into that kind of world and and do some Hollywood version of of what it is I wanted to make sure that it, that it was which it was a waste of time and money as it turned out because the book didn't get published but um I we went and uh and you know and spoke to people and and really got a better understanding and a less judgmental understanding about what people were doing there and we got some funny stories too so and why why do you think or maybe you know was it not published was it the subject matter itself or was the was it just not working as a story there were a lot of things that weren't working. I think I knew that it wasn't working as I was writing it. Yeah. And, and that is not new to me because I have had books. And, and I would probably almost say with every book, by the time I send it to my publisher, there are things I know aren't working. Mm. And, and in general, I've never had them come back and say, yeah, this is great, let's publish it. There's always edits and there's always changes yeah. to make and ways to make it better. And um, so I guess I was expecting that I would get, oh, okay, I like what you've done here. This is really interesting. What if we did this? What if we did that? Because I think the ending specifically wasn't working. Also, I had gone into too many characters' heads and, I mean, I can't even go back and think of all the things. But instead what I got was, no, this this is not, you know. It wasn't as quick as that. I did actually, I think that at first my editor said, oh, what if you tried this? but she was really not liking it and then by then when I tried to do that I thought nah this isn't working and and then it was just a no and so um oh it was it was absolutely horrible and I can talk about it and laugh now I was just again laughing last night with my writer friends about how after I got the news that they weren't going to publish it because I'd worked on it for a year yeah, and I, I had gone to a swingers party and I had just yeah. you know poured my soul into this book I remember getting that news and I went for a walk and I walked and across the road there's green space and and, and I, I walked into the middle of this oval and I sat down 
with my legs crossed. It was quite dramatic and writerly of me. And I just howled. I cried oh. like the kind of guttural like yeah. kind of and I, I still remember these this little sweet old couple walking their dog past and like looking at me sympathetically and then they kept walking and and uh and like I, my swingers book isn't getting published I, I, you don't yeah. understand I don't know what I'm going through <laughs> so what what book came after that, like what, what was the result of that not being published? The Good Sister, which was amazing. And, and you know, gosh, God love hindsight because those low moments are often, uh, you know, immediately followed by, by something great. And, and I was so supported um, by my publishers in, in that. They knew that I was creatively um, and, and financially and emotionally kind of really in a bad place because yeah. of it. And but at the same time, the mother-in-law was still that was out and flying high. So it was such a strange time, and that I was everyone saying, "Oh, you're doing so well," and I'm thinking, oh, "I don't know if I've got enough money to like pay my mortgage." But yes, I'm yeah. on Good Morning America, and yes, you know, yeah. it's been optioned, and oh shit, you know, things aren't great. But um, my editor said to me, "Sally, let's go write the book of your heart," and I um, I wrote the Good Sister, which is about an autistic. Um, librarian and 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 really I mean my son is on the spectrum and we are a neurodiverse family and it's something that I have have had that I have been a bit scared to write and and it was a story that I wanted to tell and I guess I from that and because I felt so supported I I went and wrote it and and you know it's probably again been my most successful book yet so it had a happy ending to anyone who's in a low place there was a happy ending but the the suffering is real and um I don't know any writers who haven't had some sort of rejection absolutely and you know what like and you can only say this in hindsight it really does make a great story I've heard I've heard you tell that story several times now and it never gets old or less funny so (laughs) I know well my favorite one that I always tell that you probably heard is that is the moment that I looked over at Christian at the bar and he's talking to women because women are approaching him and, and he was a great little sleuth he he would um he'd say oh that woman over there is bisexual and she came because she wanted to um explore her her kind of bisexual part with women without losing her husband and you know like that's really interesting tidbit and talk to her so he was there getting all the research and and as he's doing that a man walked up to him who'd just come out of the bedroom wearing this shirt and no well I I I thought is he wearing undies I did I didn't quite know and I, I looked over and as I had that thought, he turned to the side and he hit Christian in the leg with his enormous erection. <laughs> and, and Christian didn't even notice. And I was just across the room because Christian's just drinking. And, yeah. and it was the most bizarre image that's just forever imprinted on my mind yeah. of, of, you know, wow, like our world and, and my writing career has taken us to some weird places and, you know, he's kind of gone along with it. So so we often say we'll always have the boner. Um, always have the boner and a great story. What a champ your husband is. I love that. Yeah, he's very supportive. <laughs> um, Sally, tell me you are a not just a best-selling author in Australia but you're a New York Times best-selling author. What was it like the first time you heard that? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, people say things like, what's your dream? What's your goal? And, and um, you know, I often ask aspiring authors that now, you know, what, what's the dream? Do you want to um, 
you know, and often people's dreams are quite small. They say, I just want to see my book on the shelf or I just want to write yeah. a book or I just want to finish a book or I just want to write this particular story. And I always say, it's okay to dream big, you know, you, it's only your dream. You're, you don't have to tell anyone um, what you're dreaming of and why not make it big? Because for me, my goal was always to become a New York Times bestselling author. That's not to say that I didn't, I thought that I would get there. I knew that it was a huge um, feat and that it was something I may not achieve, but that was the goal. And I was always really clear that that was what I wanted. And uh, I kind of had an inkling with The Good Sister that it might be this book. My publishers were saying that and it, it had a lot of the, um, it seems like the publishers sometimes sort of know, but they never know for sure, but they get you know a bit of an idea. So that week as we were waiting for the, for the um it comes out on a Thursday morning here in Australia Wednesday afternoon in the states and I kept getting up and refreshing my phone to see if you know it had been updated and I got the message like all of my good news that I have had in my career at about 5 a.m yeah okay. <laughs> and then I got the phone calls from my publisher and we're facetiming and I look like hell you know like I'm there I've put on all my serums the night before I look like a glazed <laughs> donut and I'm shiny and I'm in my dressing gown and I'm saying What's the deciding factor of a book making it onto the New York Times bestselling list? Like, what what is what is the achievement? Sales. Like, say sales, sales. sales. Yeah. and is it a, a certain number of sales or just the the top amount of sales? Yeah, it's the top. Yeah. Well, there are, there are ones for there's lists for fiction, uh, nonfiction, children's basically, and um, so yeah, it was in the top ten. Um, it was number seven when it came out. The top ten sales for America that week so incredible yeah and just um it's determined by it's not a number of sales it has to meet just the ones that sell the most that week another notable mention is that the mother-in-law which was the first Sally Hepworth book that I ever read and absolutely loved um was bought by Amy Poehler's production company which is So incredible. Congratulations. What was that experience like? Oh, again, it was, um, well, it was amazing. It was, it was yeah. a real life highlight. And uh, it was not completely out of the blue because the, the little things that happened before I had a phone call with her um, after she, she was, I need to say, she was given the book by my film agent. So I don't actually have much to do with that process. I write the book, I send it to my publisher my agent and my film agent have it and then they all do their thing with it. They go off and try and get interest. So I was just here in my house in Australia and I found out that she had received it and that she wanted to have a phone call. Um, So we did that. And then I was over in the States for Good Morning America and I was in New York and my agent called from LA and said, come back via LA and we'll have breakfast with Amy. Um, So we did that, which was really cool. Um, And so I got to meet her. And then it was probably two weeks later that we finalised the deal and, and that it was bought. So it wasn't completely out of the blue, but there were all these exciting little kind of lead-ups to it. which is Yeah. And also, I mean, I've heard so many times that opportunities like that sort of, you know, they start to build momentum and then they just, you know, fall, fall away over. and nothing comes of it. So, yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Is Amy Poehler just as cool as you would imagine she would be? She's cooler and nicer and more uh, real. You know, she came, she arrived at breakfast a little bit late. She had wet hair, no makeup. She just kind of plonked herself down and we chatted about our kids and 
uh, and about, you know, her passion for telling women's stories and empowering not only in acquiring scripts but also her production company is entirely female. She only hires female directors and cinematographers and, and um, you know, her vision is, is not just about bringing women's stories to life but also empowering women to 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 do that so Mm. I mean I I couldn't have felt more um aligned with her vision and and in safe hands and knowing that she would do justice to the story as you write your books maybe now going forward but maybe from the beginning as well do you sort of see it rolling out like a tv show or a movie like as you're seeing characters develop within the story I mean yes and no I I never you know the question that you'll be constantly asked is who would play the character of blah in your book yeah and I never have an answer because to me I know what the characters look like in my head I have a very clear image and they don't usually look like a movie star you know they look like someone I went to school with or the you know woman next door or you know they and they don't look like a Hollywood actor because that's a Hollywood actor and this is Fern or Diana or or whatnot and so um they play out in a way in my head but uh it it I certainly don't write for that that end because I think that so much of what makes up a novel is that interior monologue and that Mm. description and that you know that inner voice and if you look at film scripts even if both of them are written in a scene by scene basis film script is dialogue and action and that's it yeah. it, it has none of the the thing that I love and and the, the what I put into the character because that's all carried by the acting yeah. um so to me it's a different beast and that's why I would never write my own film script I would give it to someone who was really good at it better at it yeah. than me and hope that we, there's a great cast that could carry what it is that I was trying to get across and uh, so, yeah, not really is the answer, but, um, you know, would still love to see someone do a good job of it. And Absolutely. Yeah. Do you do you have a role going forward with the adaptation or, or do you sort of step back as the author now? Well, I'm an executive producer on the books that I have had optioned and that that can mean a lot or it can mean not much in the sense <laughs> okay. that, like, it, it means that I get that credit and they have to pay me for it. Um, it also means that they have to, they run things by me. Like, what do you think about this actor? Or, um, you know, what about this? In general, they and I believe that they're the experts. And if they think something quite strongly, then we're going to go with that. With the, yeah. except, with the exception of, and this is why I want to be an executive producer, because if there is something that is really important to me, I will speak up. And I always do make it clear from the outset, for example, with, um, the, the Good Sister, which is uh, we're talking to a few production companies about now, I want to make sure that if that is made that they will cast an autistic actress as Fern and I'm not interested if they're not going to do that. And and yeah. for me, if they were going to change the ending or change the setting or do something like that, that's less important to me than um, in this day and age there are many fantastic autistic actors and actresses. I don't, there's no reason why you would not give that role because it's such a good role for an autistic character. So that's the kind of thing that I would say actually. But in in general, the scripts that the, I don't want to get up in in their business and, and, (laughs) you know, let them do what they're good at. And um, I'll just tell them what's important to me. And if they're not aligned with that, um, particularly that one, well, then we wouldn't move forward with a, a option with them. That's very evolved of you, Sally Hepworth. 
as as a as a micromanager, I would find that really difficult. <laughs> oh, you mean you're letting go of it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. I love letting go of things. God, it's my faith. As someone who has like three children, two with additional needs, a dog, a full time job, uh, you know, all of these things that I'm not managing. If someone's taking something off my plate yeah. and doing a good job with it, I'm like, go you. You just run no, with that. <laughs> And it's off my list. That's amazing. That's fantastic. I love that. I do want to ask you, um, again, another pervy question as a writer. What what do writing days look like for you? Are you someone who follows routine? Do you just write when you can? How, how does it play out for you now as someone who is a full-time writer? Well, the writing process is about three months of the year when I'm actually in that kind of I'm working on a new draft and the day is about getting those words in and it's that's a it's a pretty rare like it's not the majority of the time um because and in fact even in those times my days are interrupted with things like I might have a podcast that I stop to you know stop writing to work on or I might have an article that I have to write or a cover that I need to approve um but when I am in that that period then my day will look like getting up first thing rolling out of bed coming downstairs writing 350 words Um, I I find that if I just get that first kind of creative thing done straight away before I think too much, before I drink a coffee, um, that just sets me up really well for the writing day. Excuse me, for the writing day. Then I stop that and exercise um, or walk my dog or like exercise sounds so um, virtuous, but the exercise (laughs) can look like a stroll. Um, Yeah. I uh, I need to exercise because I get anxiety and if I don't like get that you know thing out of the way then I, that will bother me for the day. Um, get the kids off to wherever they need to go and I mean my husband is a full time parent but usually at that time of day we're both in the you know lunch boxes and you know getting everyone organised and then he takes them and I then am back at the desk and I write um, all day uh, in three hundred and fifty word bursts. Um, which is a kind of thing that I've been diagnosed recently with ADHD and um, my yes and and which my children have and it's not a huge surprise it's actually quite common with with writers and the way that our brain is but um, my my psych laughed when he said I write in 350 word bursts he said that's so ADHD of you (laughs) because we've only got like short concentration spans but so for me that really works I think I can write 350 words and then I'll cross that off and I do that six times a day um so it's about 2,000 words did that ADHD diagnosis as an adult bring some sort of relief to you yes oh yes relief understanding you know understanding yeah um those little moments of huh I do do that oh that's why I do that oh you know um for sure and also a kind of um association with so many creative people Mm. musicians artists writers Uh, my psych said that almost all of his clients are creative people because there's something about the the creative side of the brain and 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 our hyper focus the way that we can choose something that's interesting to us and just zone in on that to the detriment of everything else um, it works well for a creative brain, but um, yeah, it makes sense. And he said, "You've really worked out how to do something as long as writing a novel, but breaking it down in like that's a great technique, and that's what he would recommend to people with ADHD to get any task down, just break it into those really small chunks." And yeah, um, so that's what 
my writing day looks like for that. And and then the rest of the year is so, um, and the majority of my time is like, oh, and edits come back. I'll work on that for the morning and then I've got to do a podcast and then I have to have a meeting about updating my website and then I have to go and meet another author for lunch because we're doing a, um, a an interview together next week and we need to work out the questions and then I'm back doing a little bit more editing and then tomorrow I have to prepare for a writer's festival we're doing next week. You know, it's it's people kind of picture you sitting there working on the story and they don't, they forget the other part, which grows yeah. and grows and grows, which is about managing the business. Did you say three? So three months it takes you to write one book? One draft. So that's one the draft. first yeah, wow. draft. And then the next sort of three months will be about revising that draft, yeah. both on my own, um, because I'll get to the end and I already, you know, it's not a good draft. It's not something I would send to my publisher. So it's about kind of going, oh, that bit didn't work. And I, you know, it's like a Rubik's Cube. I'm like trying to figure it out. And then there'll be, you know, I'll polish it up and try and make it look good, maybe make a few more changes, maybe send it to a writing friend, get it back, make a few more changes. Then it goes to the publisher who'll come back and say, make some more changes. And <laughs> yeah. so that, that I, I mean, mean, the whole that, thing's been changed. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, like I would throw out at least as much as I write, like the whole novel, I would throw out that much again in terms yeah, wow. of what gets cut and changed and uh but that's a different pro. That really just that sitting and writing that most people picture authors doing is three months. Yeah. And the rest of it is that. Moving the puzzle pieces around. Yeah. Um, I want to switch from writer to reader, if you don't mm. mind. Yeah. I've got some, I do this at the end of every episode, um, rapid fire questions around oh. books. Oh. And okay. they're, they're, they're never answered rapidly. So don't feel <laughs> under pressure. Okay. Because nobody's done it fast. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm going to be the first one. Okay. Okay. So in terms of your reading, do you prefer to read, I feel like I'm going to know the answer to this, but fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. Fiction. Good. That was rapid. That was good. Yeah, I'm on. What, was, what was your favourite book growing up? Uh, Enid Blyton, The Naughtiest Girl in the School. It Ooh. was a trilogy. Yeah. I don't think I've read that. And so was it because you identified with her? Yeah, probably. I was really naughty. Um, (laughs) And also it was set at a boarding school, which I just found, I think I was probably like grade three or so when I read it. And I, um, boarding school just seemed so, and it was in England and just something that was really exciting. And, um, and yeah, I I just loved the setup of of the whole thing. And my mum was a, a school teacher and she used to get me books from the school library that she worked at. And I remember reading the first one, and she saw me reading it and I was so into it that I would do that thing, you know, when you're walking along and reading. Yeah. Um, and she went and when I got home from school the next day after finishing it, the number two book was there waiting for me that she'd got from the library. Oh. And then I finished that and, and the third one was there. And, and I always, I do that for my children if I see them enjoying any book. Like it could be a comic book. It could be a, you know, my, my daughter reads the Minecraft books. Um, and and for anyone who wants their children to be or grandchildren or, you know, whoever, husband, um, to be a reader, I think putting the books in their hands, letting them read what they love and putting the books in their hands is the way to create a reader. And don't judge what they read. If they like comic books, if they like, you know, anime, some of my kids are into reading anime and it's written in, you know, comic kind of things. That's still reading. Still reading, um, it counts. Audio books is reading and um, let them yeah. consume it in whatever way they wanted to read it and um, and make it available to them. 
It's funny that you say that. I used to read, um, I was obsessed with Nancy Drew books growing yeah. up. Yeah. And I think there was 36 in the series, right? And my dad's a big reader. And I remember him saying to me, you have to read something else. Like I'm not buying you another Nancy Drew book because you need to discover more genres. You need to discover new characters. And I was like, no, No, I just want to keep reading this. And you're you're so right. Like the fact that I was reading should have been enough for him at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was probably trying his best. But I think as, 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 uh, and a lot of the literature and and children's literacy is a real area of love of mine and a a passion Mm. project. And, and all of the research is telling us that, uh, give kids what they love and don't judge it you know yeah so yeah parents let them read Nancy Drew (laughs) that's right have you ever have you ever thought about writing a a trilogy or a series of some kind no um I I recently had a a little thought about potentially writing a prequel of The Good Sister where Fern and Rose are in the the foster home um and I I had a little bit of an idea but I then, when I was talking to my publisher about it, we kind of spawned another idea out of that, okay. So, which I think is actually going to fill the void. And, and they may, Fern and Rose may get a cameo in it, um, but it won't be their story. Okay. But in general, the answer is no, and it's because I craft these books with that these particular characters in mind, with that story which challenges these characters. And so at the end, I'm kind, I think, well, they're done. Like they have had their their experience they've been challenged by it and and now that's resolved and so for me I just am like I'm ready for the next story and you know what can I learn from it but never say never it could happen but the answer the quick answer is no what was the book that changed your life I don't think a book has changed my life a a single book um I think that books have changed my life and continue to change lives I think literacy is life-changing um, but there has never been a book that on its own has done that. What, what's been your favourite book this year? Oh, I really loved a book called The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley, which is a, oh. an American author. Um, would that be my favourite? I know I'm going to forget. Oh, yeah, the other one I loved, which is not from this year, but I read this year, was The Henna Artist by um, Alka Joshi. So um, beautiful. Yeah, I, I loved that. And, oh, one more, which is also not from this year, which I loved, is A Woman Is No Man by Etta Fram. And oh. uh, it, it, it was, I think it might even be two years old, but, my God, like it was just a, a powerful stomach punch of a book and, uh, and one every woman should read. A Woman Is No Man. A woman is no man. Okay, I'll put that one on the list. Um, mm. Do you have a favourite author? Oh, Leanne Moriarty is always up there. Um, I love Jane Harper, um, who's also a friend of mine. Um, Kelly Rimmer, uh, is, is, who wrote um, The Warsaw Orphan and, uh, and The Things We Cannot Say. Uh, Lisa Island is another Australian uh, author. The Shirley, uh, she wrote... Uh, uh, Shirley Sullivan was her last book. Um, oh, I, I'm forgetting them all, but the, so many. So it's many a good plays. list. It's a yeah, good list. Kate Morton. Oh, I love Kate Morton. Yeah. What What are you currently reading? Um, I'm reading a book called The Golden Couple, which is written by two authors who write it simultaneously. It's so. How do they do it? <laughs> I don't know. Their names are Sarah Pekkinen and Gree Hendricks, and uh, and I 
I have been lucky enough to meet them and I said how do you do it because I thought they wrote you know one of them wrote one character and one wrote the other but in fact they use Google Docs because they're in different cities and they yeah. write each word together and what? my god but you know what like I don't know how they do it but their books are amazing so I'm just starting off um it's called the golden couple but there are other books um uh, the Wife Between Us was their first book, and An Anonymous Girl um, was the second book. And oh, think- I'll have to, I'll have to have a read. I haven't heard of them before. Mm. I'm, I'm interviewing next week. Um, Ali Berg and Michelle. Oh, Krauss, yes, who great. also yeah. co-author. And yeah. I, I mean, that, like I said to you before, I'm such a micromanager. The <laughs> idea of sharing <laughs> the writing experience. I would find that somewhere. hard. I would find that hard because, as I said before, I'm happy to give, you know, the the, the creating of a script or, or whatnot, that's a different project, but I couldn't have anyone telling me what to put in. My, like it's that's about me and my process. And so in yeah. that area, maybe I am controlling. I couldn't find yeah. it. <laughs> um, and then the last question is what's your next read? What, what will you grab after that one? Oh, well. I was just actually asking Jane Harper if I could get a copy of her new one, which isn't out till next Ooh. year. So if she says yes, it will be that. Um, but if not, I, I actually really want to, um, because after next week I am shutting myself down for the summer, which I haven't done for um, ever. Like I, I cannot remember when I did that. And I just want to go into my local bookstore and just peruse the shelves because usually every book that comes my way is, a recommendation it's something that I'm reading because I need to blurb or it's books that I'm researching or it's author friends that have and, and I love all of those but it, it made me realize how I miss just the, the discovery that I find in my local bookstore so yeah um I mean there's hundreds of books waiting for me in my kindle that I could read but I'm really looking forward to buying some paperbacks that I can take to the beach and and go into it without any preconceived ideas and yeah, no, I love that. I, I love that experience as well. No, I get I get sent a lot of books, obviously, for this podcast and my publisher sends me books all the time, but I'm the same. I really like to just walk into a bookstore, feel into what feels good, sometimes yes. make mistakes, you know, when you buy a book and you're like, oh. Yes. I know. <laughs> it's all part okay. of the process. Stuff that one up. But, but you know, the, and that's why we, we need to keep our, our local bookstores alive because yeah. those, those bookstore own it almost always you know there's not some some not so good ones but I, I have the best knowledge of which books Don't to read they? including yeah. the ones that not everyone is reading that perhaps they didn't get the marketing budget that you know you don't know the name of the author but you should know it and and so yeah. that's the magic of the local bookstore I agree before I let you go we do have to talk about your latest book The Younger Wife ah, yes and I always say to authors when we're when we're spruiking one of their new books, it's really hard to talk about it because I don't want to tell everyone anything. But if you had to explain the premise of the book to people, how would well, you sell it in? It's, it, 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 if anyone has read any of my previous books, you will get what you're looking for in the sense that it's about family dysfunctionality, which is it's kind of a really um, appropriate thing to be reading at this time of year as we go into Christmas. And uh, this book is, it's called The Younger Wife, but it really could be called The Aston Family, um, who are an adult family, a mother and a father who are sort of in their 60s, two daughters who are in their 30s. And uh, then the book kicks off when the, the mother uh, figure the matriarch of the family is moved into a nursing home with dementia 
and the father uh, starts a relationship with their interior designer who's about the same age as his daughters and that relationship becomes serious and, and he announces to his daughters in the very first scene that he's going to marry her and uh, that kicks off a whole lot of things and there are a few discoveries made around that time and uh, and also a scene where uh, quite quickly where someone dies and so the rest of the book is about <laughs> yeah, someone you, just casually dies <laughs> I mean you never get a Sally Hepworth book without a dead body and and, and usually without a dead body pretty fast so you, you kind of then are delving through these family secrets and, and trying to figure out who died who did it why did they do it? And, you know, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? You know, is there a good guy and a bad guy? And um, Yeah, and, and you really nailed it with this one in the who's a good guy and who's a bad guy because yeah. it really had me guessing right up until the end, which I guess was the point of the book. And yeah. I feel like... Uh, I can't, no, I'm not going to say it. I wanted to say something, but I'm like, no, I can't, I'm going to spoil everything I say. I'm too scared. Um, but it does have it does have all those classic Sally Hepworth tropes, you know, like beautiful character analysis, dysfunctional family relationships, little twists. And a kleptomaniac, which is something as well. I've been, I, I, I've been so, there are little parts of, uh, of research that you think, God, I'd love to research a kleptomaniac because it's been one that's been in my back pocket for a while. I thought I could create this really interesting and hopefully lovable character who's a kleptomaniac and really understand that affliction, which I don't think many people do. I think a lot of people no. think, well, why? I remember Winona Ryder um, quite famously stole something like I think in the 90s and mm. which had the world going, well, she has money, right? Like, why would she do that? And and what I discovered from from research in kleptomania was that, in fact, it has nothing to do with you wanting the item. Even that you the take, it's about the taking. It's about that yeah. unable to control your impulse in a similar way as people who bite their nails, pull out their hair, cut. You know, it, it, OCD. It's it's about yeah. impulse control and. Um, and I, I ended up feeling quite sympathetic about uh, to, towards kleptomaniacs having done that research. So there's a yeah. there's a few sort of themes in the book. Um, you know, one that is touched on right from the very beginning is dementia. Mm. Um, and you've got the kleptomania. You've got the idea of the younger the younger wife coming into a family. Where what was the starting point for this book? Was there was there one? There was two things. So so one is the fact that now I'm 41 and I have two friends, uh, very close friends, who have had a younger wife enter their realm. One uh, is it's her father um, and her mother had passed away and her father uh, uh, married a woman a little bit older than her, like but just a few years, and then he had twins that were, were the same age as it was a little bit younger than her children. So, oh, so wow. that was a, yeah. that was an interesting one. And then another friend who her father-in-law um, married a woman younger than her and they have also had children. Um, and, and so that was a bit of an inspiration mostly because what I found is rather than a whole lot of cattiness, what I heard from my friends was how much they wanted to keep their families together and make it work, even though it wasn't ideal. It wasn't what they wanted. It was awkward. It was embarrassing for a couple of them thinking, you know, mm. all of the feelings and yet the way that they were fighting to keep their families together. I thought that was the sort of beautiful part of that story. Um, the other part of it is um, that there is a, a secret that unravels in in the younger wife that starts when 
one of the daughters stumbles across a hot water bottle full of cash, um, full of hundred, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in in the yeah. pool. <laughs> just, and, just a little uh, bit of cash. Yeah, and, and that was inspired from a true story um, from my great auntie Gwen, who's my like my grandma. She raised my dad, and then she's been like our grandma, and, and we're incredibly close. And a couple of years ago, after she had a fall and was taken to hospital, she rang me and said, I need you to go to my house and get my hot water bottle, which was kind of bizarre. I said, well, do you want me just to come to the hospital? And she said, no, I need it. And I said, well, I, I'll bring my hot water bottle. I have one. I'll buy you a hot water bottle. And she yeah. said, no, no, I need mine. And at that point I thought, huh, this what is going on. What's yeah. going on? So I went and retrieved the bottle, which was in a really bizarre location as well. Like it was in the spare room behind a chest of drawers. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, oh, something's in this bottle. Like what is it? Is it drugs? You know, is it yeah. like body parts? And, and, and Gwen is never married, right? She's 93. And I thought like she's got some other life. This is amazing. I'm going to write a book about it. And then as it turned out, it was, you know, not uninterestingly, it was, tens of thousands of dollars yeah, and, wow. and and Gwen is a woman of modest means I would say she's not a wealthy uh, woman and you know as it turned out it was a combination of a, a win on the poker machines <laughs> and a, a bit of a distrust of banks um, that was you know that attributed to this windfall and and in the hot water bottle but I just thought this is too good I can I can use this and and I indeed I did and that was the that was that part of the, the younger life. And let it be a lesson to us all if we're ever clearing out an estate to check, check the, the hot water, water bottle. bottle. Yeah. yeah. I know. I said to her, what if you died? Like what then? And she said, well, the people at Goodwill would have, you know, found some money. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you say that. My mum actually volunteers at Red Cross mm. and they will often find handbags full of money. Mum actually found a hand, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but whatever, oh. found, a, found a, it was a jewellery box yeah. um, and you lift off the top like with all the little compartments and there's just like a cavity underneath and it was full of marijuana. <gasps> wow. Like yeah. she said, you know, thousands of dollars worth of it. It was just jam-packed. And she thought, oh, my God, Gosh. you know, someone's given this away and um, all the drugs were stashed Little in Little did they know. <laughs> and so yeah. did they all just, like, go out the back and, like, roll some joints? <laughs> I think they did, yeah, to be I honest so. with you. Yeah. At least they deserve these volunteers. They should get That's some fun right. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so what's what's next for you? More books. I've already written the next book, the um the Cliff House, which will be out uh, this time next year in Australia. Oh, fantastic. Um and uh and I guess what's next for me, I, I still need to bring out the younger wife in the States, um, because I it releases in November in Australia here and then in April there. So I'm actually excitingly over there on tour, I'm on a national Stop. tour, which um, still feels like it can't be real. You know, I think surely I can't get on a plane and I'm, I'm too scared to, you know, I don't think I'll pack my bags until the day before, but I I've know. got my itinerary and I'm going everywhere. Oh, so. that's so exciting. I actually said that to a friend the other day about Christmas. I'm like, nobody's getting too excited to no. go anywhere just yet, just in case. When The Good Sister came out, were we in the yeah we were in the middle of the pandemic right I've brought out two books in lockdown now so oh, um wow. 
I yeah, not since the mother-in-law, I haven't um, been able to tour. So it's it's it. Look, I'm, I don't want to jinx it, but um, hopefully that's where I'll be in April. I'm touching yeah. wood for you. Don't worry. <laughs> oh well, I hope that comes off. I'm sure it will. That'll be so exciting to be back out there again promoting in the flesh. I know. We'll see. Fingers crossed. Well, thank you for talking wordy to me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have a few corrections to make. (laughs) I think it's important that I do. Sometimes when you're chatting with, well, anyone actually, any interview you do, you're sort of in the moment and it would be really nice if you could fact check as you go. Don't have the luxury. Sometimes you don't even know you've made a mistake until you're editing the episode. So there are a few things that I want to correct from that episode. The first one is... When Sally and I were talking about her favorite books, we were speaking about co-authors and how uh, it must be really hard for two authors to write together. And she made mention of Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen that wrote The Golden Couple. And I said that I was interviewing Ali Berg and Michelle Krauss. Now, first of all, I just want to say I went to school with a Michelle Krauss and it is not the woman that wrote Fancy Meeting You here. Her name is Michelle Callis. So I'm so sorry for that. It was one of those things that just kind of rolls off the tongue because it sounds right in your head and then realize you realize later that it's not. Also, I'm pretty sure Ali's last name is Burge, not Berg. So again, I'm so sorry for that. And I wanted to make that correction because people stuff up my name all the time. And I don't mind because I'm so used to it. But I think when someone can correct themselves it really does make such a difference so I just wanted to say Ali Michelle I'm so sorry and I really look forward to interviewing you this week Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode though now that all of that is out of the way this week's bonus episode I'm spotlighting Aussie author Leanne Moriarty who Sally mentioned in this episode as one of her favorite authors I know she's also a friend of hers but I wanted to share my top three Leanne Moriarty books that perhaps are not ones that you've read. They aren't her most famous, but they're definitely my most loved. Until then, enjoy your week. I hope you've got a good book waiting for you to dive into, and I'll be back on Friday with your bonus episode. I'm Jordana Levine, and you've been listening to Talk Wordy to Me. 